everybody have an outline? Looks like it. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Before we do that, though, uh, I failed to mention this morning that uh, a nephew, this is actually the husband of Katie Martin's niece, which would make him a nephew by marriage, Mark Kashavni, or Mark Kashavin, is in Methodist Hospital right now. He has just been uh, told by the medical team that he has lymphoma. And as we go to uh, the Father in prayer, we're going to ask God to, uh, to take care of Mark and his wife, Yvonne, during this, this time of health crisis. Father, we pray for our hearts to be filled with your presence and for it to overflow into joy, not only to those around us, but it become this, this beautiful light to, to, in our community. And we pray, Father, that, that it be so because of the work that you do in our lives through the Word and, and through the Spirit. We are mindful of all of the people that have been affected by adverse weather in our country and those that in this community have lost loved ones and we, we grieve with them. And we're also mindful of, of those in our own number, Father, that are struggling with health issues and health, health concerns. And, uh, and we lift up to you, Mark, and ask you to bless him and, and to bring healing to his body and, and to, to bless he and his wife, Yvonne, with, uh, with, with peace, Father, at this time. But we pray that our faith be increased. And we pray, Father, that, that we learn how to wait on you and for you to, to reveal yourself and to reveal your will to us and to reveal your great power in our lives. And so we pray for an increased faith. We pray for an increase in our ability to persevere. And we pray for humility and modesty before you at all times. And as we study this passage out of Habakkuk chapter 2, Father, we, we pray that you will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Habakkuk is a little book, but it has, I think one of the biggest messages in the entire Bible, the, the message is how do you handle evil times? When, when a nation or an individual has a, a run of good times, and sometimes it's decades and decades and decades in a nation, sometimes it's years with an, individ, with an individual, it can create the expectation that this is the way that it will, it will always be. We get kind of in a groove where we think that the, the stocks will always be better. The economy will always do better. The housing market will always be growing. Or at an individual level, you know, my kids are going to do better than me and my grandkids are going to do even better than them. And regardless of what happens at the national level or what happens at the individual level, the reality is, is that it doesn't always last. The people of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, wondered if they would ever see a good time. They went from World War I to the Depression to World War II to the Korean War to the Vietnam War, and they wondered if throughout all of that if they would ever see a good time. There are evil times that come. But then you come to a little book in the Old Testament with a funny name like Habakkuk, and when you read that book and you drink it in and you absorb its message, you're prepared for the evil times. And not just prepared you're not caught off guard when they do come. You will know how to face it. And at the same time, you will know that God is at work, even though you may not understand all of the, the, the details of that. And as we read through Habakkuk in chapter 1, and we're going to really spend all of our time in chapter 2 tonight, 
In chapter 1, Habakkuk has started out with this great complaint. The complaint is basically, why are you making me look at evil? I thought you were the Holy One. Why am I being forced? God, you're the Holy One. Why are you even tolerating it? But why do we have to look at all of this evil that has overrun the country, God? And God gives an answer that Habakkuk really wasn't expecting. God says, you know, you think you're looking at evil now. It's only going to get worse. And Habakkuk ends that chapter by saying he's now more confused than he was in this initial request. That's not the kind of answer that he expects, not the kind of answer that he expects God, uh, God is supposed to give. And so he waits for the second answer, a second response from God. And that's what chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that James just read for us, that's what this little interlude uh, uh, in Habakkuk is all about. The point is that Habakkuk is going to have to learn what it means to wait on the Lord. The question is, how do you live with evil times? You wait on the Lord. Whether it's at a national level or an individual level, how do you deal with the evil times? The looking and the, 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 the staring in the face of evil, the answer to Habakkuk is you wait on the Lord. But here's the question. Is waiting on the Lord a virtue or a skill? Is, you know, we, this word is, this phrase is nearly a cliche, is it not? What do you need to do? You need to wait on the Lord. We sing, waiting on the Lord. Is it a virtue or is it a skill? It, is, if it's a virtue, then that means that it's something that is innate inside of us. It's a part of our DNA. There, there's a gene that gives us virtue. And if we don't have it, then we don't really have any responsibility or any compulsion to develop it. But what if waiting on the Lord is a skill? That means that it is something that can be developed in our life. And the good news is, is that if we can develop it, then we are positioned to face the evil times with poise. And to be knocked, and, and not knocked off of, of our game, and not have our legs knocked out from under us when these times come. And I think what Habakkuk does in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is to help us to see that there are at least five things that we can do to help us develop this, this, this skill of waiting for the Lord when we find ourselves in a valley or we find ourselves in a tunnel. And the first thing is this. You wait patiently. You wait patiently. Look at verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger... Wait for it. Wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. That Hebrew word for wait implies patience. The idea is if something is lingering, if, it, if it's delayed, wait for it. It will come eventually. It's like waiting for a cab. You're you're, you're downtown in San Antonio. You don't, you, you don't have a car handy. You don't want to take public transportation. So you call this taxi. And you wait 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 and you wait. Taxi does not come. You wait a little bit more and the taxi does not come. You finally get frustrated and you decide that the cab is not going to come. So you take off walking. And then 30 seconds later, the cab shows up. But you missed it. Or it's, you know, and I think this is probably even more apropos for our own culture and our own city. You're at the doctor's office. And you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. You go up to the window, you knock on the window. The nurse comes in, hey, I've been waiting here for a long time. Was the doctor going to see me? And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And you wait some more, and you knock on that window, and you ask the nurse, and the doctor will see you when he can get to you. 
You know, it's a busy day. Everybody has the flu. Everybody is sick. There's a lot of sick people here. You have to be patient. And you're patient. And you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. And finally, you get frustrated. You can't wait any longer. You walk out of the door to make an appointment at some other day when the nurse opens the door to the waiting room and says, Doc, uh, Mr. Absher, the doctor will see you now. You missed it. You missed it. The point that I think Habakkuk is making here is that when you're tired and you're weary and the will of God isn't very clear and you're being called to be patient and to wait, you don't blow up, you don't leave, but you be patient. Now, a lot of people say that they could, they could be patient, but they're not. Because they haven't got the patient's germ or, yet, or it, it's not a part of their DNA, so they're relegated to a life of impatience. They're always going to be blowing up. They're always going to be impatient. Listen, friends, the Bible is very clear that there are some actions that you can take to develop this patience in your life. For instance, know that patience is an act of deliberate humility. Part of being patient is saying, I will be humble and I will be modest before God. Think about what James, the brother of Jesus, is saying in the fourth chapter of that letter, that general letter he writes to the church. James says, you know, when you think about it, you say that you have plans and you think you know how they're going to work out and that you're going to do this and you're going to do that, but you really don't know, do you? And so he says in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. When our plans don't work out, we get frustrated and we get angry and we get this way because of our assumed omniscience. We think we know the way it's supposed to happen and what time it's supposed to happen and, and the schedules. But we really don't know. I got really frustrated. Back in the 1980s, Ellen and I had worked very hard. We had raised the money that we needed to go to Africa. We were going to plant a church with a couple of other families in Harare, Zimbabwe. It was a place that Ellen had grown up. We had visited the country. We had the support raised, and we thought we were going to go, and that team fell apart. We were supposed to be there in 1986. Well, 1986 rolls around, and there's no team, and there's not even a place. And then not long after that, we were contacted by a team that was, in, that was forming at Abilene Christian University that was going to go to Porto Alegre, Brazil. It's not even the same continent. And we say, okay, we'll check it out. We, we joined this team. We liked everybody. We knew these, these folk from, from school, and the exact same thing happened. We go down to Brazil. We fall in love with this, this town, and we decide this is where we want to go, and we feel that this is where God is leading us, and the next thing you know, that team falls apart too. And so I decide maybe it's not meant for me to go to the mission field. Maybe I'm not supposed to, to, to be a missionary at all. I thought that I was called to be a missionary, but the Lord's will is not very clear right now. I was getting frustrated. And so I decided maybe the calling is really someplace else. And then we get this phone call. Not long after I'm feeling these, this sense of frustration about what I'm supposed to do with my life in ministry, I get a phone call, long-distance phone call. You can tell just as soon as you pick up the phone, the landline is 80s, we signed landlines, and there's a crackle, and you know it's long distance, and it's international. And it was the voice of Jerry Heydrich and Bob Carpenter. Bob Carpenter is a professor up at OCU now. And these two men are calling. They had heard that we were interested in going to Brazil, as well as the McClure family that were also part of that Porto Alegre team that wanted to go. But falling through, they were frustrated. They were calling us to see, would you like to come to Brasilia? 
And three years after the time we thought that we would be landing in Harare, Zimbabwe, the place that we thought that we were supposed to spend the rest of our life, God has called us and has made every door open up and we land in Brasilia, Brazil and live there for the next six years. Patience is an act of deliberate humility. We think we know, but we really don't know. And we need to lay down this mantle of omniscience. Patience comes in a deliberate act of humility. Neither you nor I have omniscience. We need to learn that, that patience. And then number two, patience is a deliberate vote for personal growth. When you find yourself in that doctor's office or you find yourself waiting for that cab and you're growing impatient... We don't normally say, but it's a great opportunity to say, you know, this is a moment for me to go through some personal growth. Here is something that nearly does not happen when that evil time comes upon us. We do not say to ourselves, I'm going to grow through this. I am going to come out on the other side of this rough, uh, rambunctious time a more beautiful person in the eyes of God. We don't ever say that. And yet this is something that the Bible talks about all the time. The Bible says over and over again that, the, that God can turn the evil time into something that's pretty neat. For instance, in James chapter 1, consider it pure, pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces this great thing like perseverance. And there are other verses. But these two underscore the fact that God can take this evil time that we are facing in His two hands and turn it into something good. And that something good in, in, in both of these verses has to do with your character. That you can become this person of poise. That, that pressure applied the right way turns coal into a, a, a diamond, right? Adversity will either develop a better prayer life or a worse prayer life. Right? Think about all of the people that you know that have the kind of prayer life that you would like to have in your own life. I, I personally do not know of anyone who has a great prayer life who has not gone through a ringer, an emotional, spiritual ringer of some sort. Think about Job 23. It's right there in the middle of the book. It's one of the high points of the entire book of Job. I think Job is one of the most important books in the entire Bible because it deals with, with the relationship with God, especially when there is no reason to have a relationship with God. In fact, there's every reason not to have a relationship with God. And in chapter 23, Job, who's struggling with God and struggling with the evil times and struggling with the, the evil advice that his friends are giving him, Job says in the middle of that chapter, in the middle of that book, I don't know what God is doing, but what I know is that whatever it is that He is doing, I will come forth as gold and I will be patient. What Job is saying is that he will meet this evil time with patience. But then there's a second thing that Habakkuk teaches us, and it's not just you know dealing with the patience and waiting. It's number two. You have to maintain a point of view. Go to the top of chapter 2 in your Bibles, verse 1 of Habakkuk. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts, I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm, I am to give to this complaint. 
What Habakkuk is doing in this verse is talking about going up into a tower. Why? Why in the world, out of all of the things that Habakkuk could do, they just say, you know what I need to do? I need to go up into a tower. Why does he do that? Well, I think the answer in part is why in the world do cities build towers in the first place? The reason that they build towers, and the reason why there are towers at each corner of the walls, is that they needed to see what was coming down the road. Certain things you can see from the tower, like enemies or allies that are coming to your rescue, these are the kinds of things that you can see from the tower, but you can't see from the ground. So then how does this fit in what Habakkuk is trying to tell us? I think in essence what he's reminding us is that it means that you have to look at life from the perspective of God the Father or through that angle. In other words, it means that you look at life with everything that the Bible tells you. Let me give you an example of something that, that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 to kind of clarify this. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now when you think about Paul's life, you think about Acts, you think about what he writes in 2 Corinthians and, and other places, one of the things that is, that is beyond denial is that Paul went through a lot of suffering. Paul, at times, is being beaten and he's going through hardships and he's in danger and there are threats and he encountered all kinds of problems and he encounters all kinds of evil. But Paul, like Habakkuk, goes into his tower and he sees all of his ailments, he sees all of his grievances, he sees all of his sufferings. He sees all of the things that he has to put up with. He sees the evil that has been brought into his own life. But he sees it from the perspective of his one big problem. His one big ailment. That is, his sin having been solved. And because that one had been solved, he is able to walk through his evil times knowing that true riches were his at the end of time. That regardless of whatever they did to him, Whatever they took from him, the one thing that they couldn't take from him was his relationship with God, his forgiveness, the compassion, the grace, and the mercy that he was experiencing in this relationship with God. That's the one thing that nobody could take from him. It could be evil, evil, evil in his experience, but that was the one thing that he saw from the rampart, from his own personal tower. He is looking at all of life, everything that's rolling down the road at him, and he's seeing it from that perspective. The ally is coming to. It's God. And he meditated on all of these verses to, to the point that all of these biblical truths and all of these, these facts and all of these, these, these uh, principles that form the foundation of our faith, he meditated on all of these verses to the point that they penetrated him. And they became for him his perspective. That's why waiting is not a very passive thing at all. It's not. It's, it's, it's going into that tower. And it's considering all of life from, from the angle that Scripture gives you. And then the third thing is not only maintaining that point of view of looking at all of life through what the Bible tells you. It's number three. You, you do it patient, uh, uh, obediently. And this has to do with the first part of the first verse. He says, I will stand my watch. You do it obediently. You, he says, I stand at my watch. 
Now the image here is this military metaphor. It's that of being a sentry. Now here's the thing about being a sentry. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has nothing to do with how you feel. Regardless of how you might be feeling, you cannot leave your post. You just can't do that. How many times have you seen, well, this is a military town, how many times have you seen in real life, in the military, somebody standing out in the rain or out in the sleet or out in the snow and the cold and all of the, all of the terrible weather, and that person is maintaining their post? And if you haven't experienced it in real life, you see it in the movies all the time. There's always, you, you never see a, a, a century standing in good weather. It seems like in every movie, it is terrible weather. And regardless of what he might be feeling, he cannot leave that post. He can't do it. Because if he does, what happens? Well, if it's a city that he's guarding, it might be lost. If it's a platoon that he's watching and guarding and a sentry for, then that whole platoon, all of those men might be lost. You have to do your duty. And even though Habakkuk is intellectually realistic and confesses that he does not get what it is that God is doing, he doesn't understand, he will not leave his post. I will stand at my watch. He will not be disobedient. You know, you may be weary, at times perplexed, not getting much out of your faith, confused, disappointed. But here's the thing. You can't leave your post. Waiting does not mean waiting around and doing nothing. I mean, they don't call them waiters in restaurants because they're sitting around doing nothing, right? To wait on somebody means to serve, right? Ladies in waiting were those that served the royalty. Waiting on the Lord means that while you're looking for an answer, when you're waiting to hear that answer from God, you continue to do what you're called to do. Now what does that mean? It means that when God seems absent and silent and aloof, and when there are evil times beginning to surround you, when it seems like it is human nature, and, and rightly so, to give up what we normally do, like getting up on Sunday morning to go to church or to pray or to read the Bible or to serve others or to contribute or to fellowship. That you don't do that. That you don't give that up. And a lot of times we do. And it's because we're filled with self-pity and not getting anything out of our faith. We think. We, we, we don't stand our post. We don't stand our watch. Because it doesn't make sense. We've been standing there too long. We've lost our patience. We're frustrated. We are, we are feeling like we are out there on our own. God seems absent. And, so, and because we're not getting anything out of our faith, what do we do? We abdicate the post. So think of a court-martial scene. The judge, advocate, general asks the soldier why he left his post. You're a sentry. You know what that means. Why did you leave your post? The soldier responds, well, I wasn't really getting anything out of it, so I left. And the judge advocate general says, oh, okay, case dismissed. That's not what happens, is it? You know, the guy that wrote the, the song, the hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton, he was once told by a person that, that was not praying that he wasn't praying because he was really not getting anything out of it, which was a mistake because John Newton was an incredibly intelligent and spiritually profound individual. And a guy just comes up to him and says, you know, I'm not praying anymore because I'm not getting anything out of it. And Newton replied that you certainly get the same thing out of not praying. The 
point is you always keep it up. You keep attending worship. You keep praying. You, you keep reading the Bible and pressing your mind into God's Word. You continue to meet with people and to fellowship and, and to ask questions and to talk and to debate. You keep it up. And it's not only doing the things you know to do that are right, but making sure you stay away from the things that you shouldn't do. You don't feel good about your faith. Life isn't going very well. You're surrounded by the evil. God seems aloof and absent. He's not doing what you want Him to do. The answer's not coming. So what do you do? You try sex. Or you try alcohol or drugs to try and to feel good. But friends, it doesn't work. And you know what you call that? That's leaving your post. You don't leave your post. Well, fourth thing that Habakkuk says is you've got you to keep God-centered. You keep God-centered. The second part of the first verse, he says, I will look to see what He will say to me. I will look to see what He will say to me. One of the things we have to clarify, and the evil times help with this, if we let it, is whether or not we're waiting on God or whether or not we're waiting on God's stuff. Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, in, in many respects, is a lot like Job. In the book of Job, Satan comes and says to God that the only reason that Job worships you, the only reason, God, that Job thinks that you're a, a bag of chips and all that, uh, is that, and, and the reason he serves you, and sacrifices for you is because of all of the stuff that you give him. Why, look at all of the stuff that you've given him, says Satan. But if you take it all away, if you bring the evil to bear on Job's life, he will curse you. He will curse you if you take it away. Now, here's the thing. Satan is not wrong, is he? Satan really knows us. We come to God because we need something and we want something badly. And, and, and again, this is not all bad. We want the grace. We want the mercy, the forgiveness, the peace. We want the marriage fixed. We want all of the, the problems solved. All of these are great things and the right things to want. But we can't stay at that want level, can we? The level of what I'm getting from God, wanting the stuff. Why? Because it can lead to hypocrisy. What if someone says they love you but they derive a lot of benefits from you, but then all of a sudden those benefits that are derived from that relationship with you are taken away. They will drop you like a stone if it's hypocritical. What happens when two people stand in front of God, in front of a congregation, and the minister says, will you and will you, and they say, yes, come heaven or high water, come sickness or in health, prosperity or poverty, we will stick together. But then it is the sickness and it is the poverty and it is the high water that comes. And the marriage falls apart because it really wasn't about the person as it was the benefits that were derived from that person. You're not loving that person for that person. You're loving that person for what you can get out of that person. And that is hypocrisy. And that is why relationships get dropped like a stone when they get to that. And how awful... Does it truly feel to be loved only for what people can get out of you? You would feel rejected. You would feel rejected. You would feel 
objectified. You would say that person never loved me. They only loved my stuff. What I could give them. And for years, I've heard people say, I used to go to church all the time, but I never got any of the stuff that I prayed about, so I'm out of here. I'm out of, I'm out of that place. And they treat God the way that they would never want to treat anyone to treat them in a million years. So what does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means to love God for Himself and for who He reveals Himself to be. It means to be faithful to Him even when at the moment it doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere. Now Habakkuk is a book of complaints by a person who in the end stays with God because he chooses God. He chooses to love God. And he chooses to serve God. Habakkuk loves God because God is God and nothing less. And whenever you find yourself in the dark, a question will come to you. And the question will come because Satan knows us. And the question in the dark, in the, with, in the context of the evil, is this. Are you in this because of God or because of the stuff that God gives you? There is a reason why spouses who do this to their mates are so very, very ugly. And when the evil times come, you have to decide who your heart is for. Is it God or the mammon? And then the last thing that Habakkuk teaches us, and we're, we're done, is you, he teaches us to continue all of this joyfully. Here's one of the most famous verses and important passages in the entire Bible, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. It's verse 4. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. You know, faith is not just stoically holding on to God, but relying on the hope of the gospel. Now, there are profoundly sad moments where you don't feel very joyful, right? And I don't think that this is really what Habakkuk means by all of this. I think that what he is saying is that there is always joy attached to whatever scene we find ourselves in. That there's a joyful ending that we look forward to. That is the end result of all of this faith and this struggle and this, this patience and this perseverance. There's this amazing parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12. There's this, this king that goes away and he goes away for a period of time and then he comes back. And then in verse 37 of Luke chapter 12, the servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth, He Himself will seat them. And this King will put on an apron. And this King will serve them, who? The servants, as they sit and eat. You know, when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, or, or verily, verily, or amen, amen, He is saying something very profound. And, and, and especially, is it true here? Jesus is saying that there's a time when He will put on the apron. Which means literally He's saying, I am going to, to gird up. Which means that He will take the long part of His robe and tuck it into His belt so that He can focus all of His attention without distraction on serving the faithful 
waiting servant. He is saying, if you wait on me, I will wait on you. He is saying that through faith, if you wait patiently, if you will wait on me and persevere through these times that you don't understand, that I will wait on you. I will focus my power on making you happy. And we know that this is true in the future because it was true in the past. In John chapter 13, Jesus is about to be crucified. You know the story these last night with His disciples. And in John chapter 13, He, he wraps this towel around Him. You know, He gets Himself ready for work. He wraps that towel around His waist and He sits down with a basin of water and one by one by one by one, He waits. The Master, the, the King... The Lord, the Son of God Himself, God incarnate, wraps a towel around His waist and washes the feet of His disciples like a servant. It's utterly shocking for Him to do this. It's shocking. I mean, who really does that kind of thing? I mean, could you imagine Donald Trump taking off his tie and his coat and, and getting a towel and wrapping it around himself and going around to the, to the, the, the valet parking lot attendants of, of the Trump Towers and washing their feet. And then going to the secretaries and the people that run the messages and run the, 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 the mail room. And one by one by one. I mean, who does that kind of thing? And Jesus is saying, serve you. And then after He washes their feet and saying that if I will serve you, you serve each other, what does He do? He goes out and He dies on the cross. And the question is this. If you see Jesus serving you on the cross in the past in order to serve you in the future, can we not wait for Him now? even in the middle of the evil. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And I, I, I don't know where you are. You know, when, whenever we come together as a church family, people are in different places, spiritually and emotionally and intellectually. But one of the great things about being in a place like this is that we worship God. And we pray for each other. And we read God's Word. And then we have this this time in which we give you an opportunity to respond to anything that might be on your heart. And we'll have some of our shepherds down here at the front. It may be that you are ready to give your life to Christ and to become a child of God and to, to choose God and to choose life in Christ and to have your sins washed away and to become a disciple for life until that day that He serves you in heaven and makes you eternally happy. Or it might be that you are a disciple and you're struggling right now because the evil seems to be swirling around you and your heart, your heart is struggling with the darkness. Your heart is struggling with the blackness of it all. That's so unfair. And it doesn't seem right. And justice, what does that mean? And you're really struggling right now. Here's an opportunity 
for you to say to all of your brothers and sisters, your friends in Christ, pray for me. Pray for me. And help me to wait on the Lord. If we can serve you in any way, come down and talk to our shepherds. Let's stand and praise God together.